If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Tuesday, February the 6th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me in studio here on the campus of Stanford University, Richard Epstein. Richard is the Hoover Institution's Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow, as well as the Lauren A. Tisch Professor of Law at New York University Law School, and he's a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Richard also headlines another of Hoover's podcasts, The Libertarian, and that's what we're going to talk about today, Donald Trump and the libertarian existence. Richard, thanks for coming down and doing this. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Okay. One thing I've been meaning to ask you for a very long time is how do you do what you do and that you write a lot of copy? You and Victor Davis Hanson are probably the two most prolific senior fellows here in terms of just producing columns week in and week out, almost day in and day out. How do you, how do, you do this? How does the thought process work? Well, what you do is you have to always be thinking about things in the background. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's never a moment in which something doesn't percolate through your mind. And then what you have to do is to be a bit of an academic voyeur. And what I mean by that is you open up a website and you start to see something and you think about it. Right. Or what you do is you take the local paper and see the headlines and you try to follow what the trend is. So right. this week I wrote about the Obama Presidential Library, which I regard as a full-scale catastrophe. Why was that? Because the High Park Herald, which we still get, had that on the front page. <laughs> and there was a great line there. All of the liberals now discover the president is something of a thug in the way in which he's trying to push everybody around with respect to Jackson Park. And so uh, the cool, mellow Barack Obama has another side, and it's an angle, and you could write about it. Also, it turns out I do teach real estate development and know something about land planning. When you put the two things together, you get a story. Uh, so essentially, I go through the entire week for the Hoover column, wondering myself, is there going to be something I could write about this week? Mm-hmm. And sometimes I don't find it until Saturday. Sometimes it's foreordained, and by Tuesday I know exactly what I'm going to have to, to write about. And then I just sit down and write it. Well, how do you write it? Well, what you have to do when you write columns like this is to learn how to write to space. That is, the Hula column, they're pretty insistent that they want you to keep it around 1,500 words. Mm -hmm. And so you have to think of 1,500 words of thought. Uh, 200 won't do it. 2,000 may, but you have to compress it. Uh, So you have to essentially be able to space this stuff and know how much research to do. Uh, The secret on that is you have to have a pretty broad fund of background knowledge. Fortunately, I've taught about 40 different courses in my law school career, so there's always something that's sticking out that comes back. Mm-hmm. And then what you have to do is to find the theme. And then as you go through, you do your research a little bit before, but most of it in the middle of it. You come to a point, you say, I better check this out. And I have a rule of never being disappointed with what I get. If it turns out there's somebody who's got it nailed, I praise the fellow and go on to something else and figure out what he's inspired me to say. And if it turns out there's somebody who does something wrong, well, you try to correct it. So uh, you always keep yourself moving. And I've done now, I guess. Uh, it's been um, I, 2008 when I started. It's now 2018. So I've done about 50 a year, give or take. And so I suppose over that particular time, I've done about 470 columns uh, Uh, one form or another for Hoover. And then I write other stuff. Sometimes I write it for clients um, who need to get positions made out to the public. Mm -hmm. And I always have a rule of insisting upon disclosure that I'm being done. And the protection that I hope to get is that I'm usually writing about something that I've written about independently beforehand. 
And so you try to establish a strong intellectual brand, which allows you to do that. And I've learned over the years, whether it's for for clients or for academic stuff, you should never be afraid to write about a topic that somebody thinks you can write about. You may think you know nothing about the topic, but oftentimes other people are more knowledgeable about you than you are about yourself. And if somebody says, gee, I would like you to tell your thoughts about such and such, your answer should be, let's do it, take the risk. So to give you but one illustration, uh, back in the 80s, over 30 years ago, I was asked by uh, Attorney General Meese to come down to the Justice Department to speak about the Commerce Clause. And I said to myself, well, you know, I've always been kind of uneasy about the received wisdom. Maybe I should write this paper, and I did. And it ended up in the Virginia Law Review, and it was the beginning of the counter-revolution in Commerce Clause jurisprudence, the effort to say that the limits there really matter. People thought that this would never come to bear. Uh, but of course, by the time we got to the big case in the Obamacare situation, Commerce Clause was front and center. And, and so what happens is if you can do something that somebody else thinks you're right about, what you do is you expand your own frontiers. Once you do that, then there are going to be a couple of follow-on things that you can do. Uh, so what you do is you try to get self-generated ideas and use them for books. Uh, but uh, sort of columns, articles, and so forth, you really take suggestions. So I have never turned down a writing assignment with maybe one or two tiny exceptions on sort of exotic points of foreign taxation or whatever. Um, never turned down an assignment on the grounds that I don't know anything about it. Um, my view is this is an opportunity to learn and that if you basically don't want to take these challenges, you're not standing still, you're falling back. Whose writing do you enjoy reading? Well, I always enjoy reading Victor because he alternately infuriates me and pleases me <laughs> in terms of what he does. Um, I tend to, I think, on some areas I have kind of go-to people. I mm -hmm. mean, I, I would single out for particular praise, I think, Andy McCarthy of the National Review, mm -hmm. because I have taught criminal procedure and substantive criminal law, but I'm not an inside man on that particular subject. And I think he is somebody who is tough-minded, not only on his opponents, but also upon his friends, which I think in this kind of world is extremely difficult. I mean, uh, talking about other Hoover calls, uh, one of my former students, a man of great distinction, Michael McConnell, he always writes stuff on either religion or the history of American federalism that mm -hmm. I, I really take uh, to read uh, uh, in terms of columnists and so forth. I mean, I, I do admire most of the Wall Street Journal columnists, even when I disagree with them. I wince at many of the New York Times columnists. I mean, in particular, Paul Krugman, I think, deserves a special mention as somebody who, every time he writes something, it, it inspires me to think the opposite uh, on, on these kinds of things. Uh, but I read completely eclectically, one way or the other. And um, rarely, I mean, one of the secrets about reading widely is that for things that you know about, you don't read the whole article. You read the beginning, you read the end, you sample in the middle and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, with the time when you read in greater depth is when you want to criticize something. And the secret of that is somewhat different, which is you do not write blunderbuss criticisms where you talk about 15 people, each of them in one sentence each. What you do is you take what you regard as the strongest intellectual opponent study that in detail, and then write about that in detail in order to get yourself some kind of intellectual credibility. That is, there's a certain kind of danger in flitting from rose to rose, right? Hoping right. to get pollen here and nectar there, or whatever you get from these flowers and so forth, without really hunkering down. So it's all like, I mean, so it's all that same way. And of course, you know, the other thing is, do you like reading judges and so forth? And you know, uh, 
it, it's hard to say, you know, who are your favorite judges in a given way, but just to mention one, I, I, there was this very difficult question about the Fourth Amendment and surveillance, and uh, it, there was an excellent opinion in the Sixth Certain by Ray Kethledge, and so when I did one of my Hoover columns, I led with them um, uh, talking about what he had said and explained why I think that he knew a lot more than the Supreme Court justices did, given the way in which the discussion and the oral argument um, had, had gone. So. Um, I think that is probably it. And of course, historically, you always like to read the great classics. Right. Uh, I am trained, I, I know this sounds strange to you, but if you wanted to figure out what the sort of hidden, how do we put it, intellectual influence on my life is, it would surely be Roman law, uh, Gaius and Justinian. This is not where most people start, but to give you an idea of how powerful it is, I, I work on a number of projects now for clients and trying to figure out how you understand the modern rules of statutory interpretation. And sure enough, in order to make the case go, you start talking about causa mortis prestari, which in English means furnishing a cause of death, and explain how it is that this term gets derived from the lexiquilli, which deals with a term known as a kittera, to kill by cutting. Because the central question in statutory construction is how much of an analogy do you accept and what kinds of false analogies do you reject? Mm -hmm. And the guys who are the past masters at doing this stuff are with the Romans and then some of the medieval jurors. So I've always regarded myself as being extremely fortunate to have a classical background. And one of the things that you do when you have that background is it allows you to pivot from point to point more rapidly than you might if the only thing you're aware of is contemporary sources. Like Victor. Victor also. Well, Victor's, I mean, yeah, he, he's a classicist, <laughs> right. right? I mean, the guy sits out there and uh, he turns out incredibly erudite stuff. I mean, the column he wrote about Matthew Ridgway in Korea, mm -hmm. for example, one of the immortals. It was really a great piece of work. You know, I knew something about Korean War, but right. not the way in which he knows the military history in the book, which is coming out. And you know, I haven't read it yet, but everybody says, you know, it's the 80th or 90th or 150th book on the Second World War, and it has fresh insights in it. That's all. Wonderful. So, Richard, a funny thing happens here in Silicon Valley. You go to a Super Bowl party, you go to a dinner party, you gather with people, and inevitably, invariably, the discussion leads to politics, it leads to government, it leads to news. And the person you're talking to says, well, you know, I'm not a Democrat or Republican. I'm not a liberal or conservative. You know what I am? I'm a libertarian. Well, you hear a few people like that. You do. So, so two questions here. Number one, why has it become fashionable to say you're a libertarian? Do people know what a libertarian is? Which leads to the second question, Richard Epstein, define to me what a libertarian is. Ah, well, for one thing, I have a column called The Libertarian, and right. then underneath it, it says the classical liberal view on the world. And what we did is we had to make a very delicate compromise to capture the essential ambiguity in the libertarian position. If you announce to the world at large that you're a classical liberal, there'll be 14 people out there who will know exactly what you mean, right. and there'll be 14 million people who have no idea what you're talking about. On the other hand, if you call yourself a libertarian, what you do is you miss some of the subtleties associated with the position. Mm -hmm. And the key difficulty is that libertarianism has essentially two strands. One of them is the very strong anecho tradition, and what it does is it stresses that the central prohibition associated with legal organization is the prohibition against the use of force and fraud. 
And it turns out that you can go very far down the world to understand how it's organizing by constantly understanding that. And then the other side of the position is that voluntary transactions between two individuals should be accepted. And so the forward variable of libertarianism is force no contract yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and that probably gets you about 85% of the truth. But 85% of the truth isn't 100% of the truth. And so then what you have to do is to figure out those cases in which force is justified and which contracts ought to be limited. If you're a classical liberal, what you do is you have fairly broad senses of the cases in which you can intervene to cover those two problems. If you're a libertarian, you're kind of stuck uh, because there's no intellectual tool that you will have which will allow you to explain why it is that the exceptions you kind of know have to exist, like public streets and so forth, work. So what's the difference? Well, the libertarian is only controlled with a single dimension, which is the control of force and the protection of property. The classical liberal has two dimensions, and they are in conflict with one another. One of them is the constrain the force issue, and the other turns out to be the transactions cause bilateral monopoly holdout kind of question, right. the coordination question. And Ronald Coase became an adjective, the Coasean view of the world, because he was the first person who stressed the obvious, which is that frictions in legal institutions and social arrangements are every bit as important as they are in physics. And if it turns out that the frictions under certain kinds of institutional arrangements are so large, beneficial transactions will be killed off. Uh, so what the classical liberal says that the libertarian will deny is that you can use forces the state in order to coerce people into entering into businesses, which they cannot do otherwise, on the condition that they are left on average better off than they were before the kind of an arrangement. So the classical liberal has no trouble with taxation, but is rather insistent upon flat taxation for general revenues and user fees with respect to special projects. The libertarian is opposed to all taxes and so doesn't know how to differentiate amongst the various projects, right. even those things are critical. It turns out organizing a network industry like a telephone, a utility, or a railroad doesn't admit the competitive solutions for the very simple reason is in a competitive solution, you're not dependent upon inputs from your customers and outputs to them, or your rivals rather, but in a network industry, you have to run your track trains over somebody else's tracks and so forth, and you have to have full access, and that requires that you get some way to join people together as part of a network. And at least under many classical circumstances, the transactions cost to voluntary arrangements is sufficiently high that you can't do it. One of the reasons why people in Silicon Valley tend libertarian is in the areas in which they work, uh, the impediments against uh, libertarian theory based upon these coordination difficulties tend to be smaller than they are in certain areas. So for example, when you're doing real estate development and land use, you really have to worry about externalities based between situational situations. Some of them are nuisances, some of them are short of nuisances, but are nonetheless irritants that you'd like to control against. And having a comprehensive system of zoning is often perverse, but at least in some cases could create Pareto improvements, i.e. situations where everybody, when benefit and bound, is better off by having the system of regulation than not having it in place. Well, if you start looking at the internet, the externality problems in cyberspace are relatively minor. And so libertarians don't start to think about nuisances in the way in which you have to do in real space, and that means they tend to turn more libertarian in the pure libertarian sense and less classical liberal. But essentially, if you wanted to summarize it in a word, 
Uh, classical liberals allow for forced exchanges that create Pareto improvements that is leaving everybody better off. That opens the field to taxation and eminent domain to enormous uses of federal power. And then it also explains how you start to regulate things like the control of wildlife and the control of internet and various sorts of things like that. Um, mm -hmm. A platform industry sometimes require this. And so it's always a question of whether or not private ingenuity is going to allow you to avoid state intervention to make something work or whether or not it turns out that the obstacles to this are so great that you have to have the condemnation power. And so can you organize a system of public utilities that have to have long and skinny pipelines go several hundred miles um, without using the eminent domain power? Occasionally you could get close, but almost always you're going to fail somewhere down the line. And so the classical liberal will allow this. And the great challenge is you never want these powers uh, which can be used to overcome transactional obstacles to become the devices of faction, whereby people can steal huge amounts of money by putting them into, say, insurance pools from which they get out very little in order to subsidize somebody else. And the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, essentially cratered largely because it used insurance as a redistribution mechanism rather than a risk reduction mechanism. And sure enough, the adverse possession problem took place. And you see these private plans and these state plans failing in droves. I've mm -hmm. said this 10, 12 years ago. I, if you want, there's a debate that I had with, I can't remember the name of this woman, but at the NYU um, Law School about 2009, about whether or not Obamacare would succeed or fail. And I said, it's just a matter of time before it craters. And of course, I was, you know, roundly, shall we say, uh, boo, boo. Is, yeah, whatever, um, <laughs> doubted on this thing. But of course, exactly that is what has happened. And right. you have to understand how insurance markets work. And if you're just a political type thinking of it as a tool for redistribution, you will not understand how uh, the rules that you impose can come back to hurt the very people whom you're trying to help. Richard, August 2014, the New York Times Sunday Magazine wrote a column, published a column with this headline, Has the Libertarian Moment Finally Arrived? Question mark. And what I was suggesting, Richard, was that the Republican Party was poised to put forward as its next presidential nominee a libertarian. And here are the words the New York Times used to describe this. It talked about, quote, a GOP more flexible on social issues might also appeal to another traditionally democratic group with a libertarian tilt, the high-tech communities in Silicon Valley and elsewhere, whose mounting disdain for taxes, regulations, and unions has become increasingly dissonant with their voting habits. Well, Richard, somebody like that did come along in the 2016 field. His name was Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky. And we watch you decide. <laughs> Rand Paul runs for president, Richard. His announcement speech, he uses the words... Quote, with God's help and with liberty lovers everywhere. Rand Paul talks about wanting a flat tax. He talks about entitlement reform, Richard. He builds his record in part in 2015 upon wanting to stage a filibuster against renewal of the Patriot Act. He is not just in favor of marijuana legalization. He raises money with help from the National Cannabis Industry Association. And for all of that, Richard, he finishes fifth in Iowa, and he's a goner. So the question, the question is, what happened to Rand Paul? But what happened to the idea of a libertarian as a Republican nominee? He's the wrong libertarian to go forward. Why so? Oh, because he makes so many stupid blunders that it's hard to keep track of them. Uh, so, for example, I talked about the cases for general regulation, and common carriers are one of them. 
-hmm. And what you want to do, therefore, is to ask whether or not a common carrier is entitled to engage in discrimination letting passenger on or off a train. Everybody instinctively knows that using racial categories in invidious fashions in this particular thing is totally unacceptable. But he says it's a private enterprise, so he believes in freedom of contract. This is not the world in which freedom of contract applies. This is a monopoly position, and there are certain kinds of friend obligations, fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory treatment uh, that you have to give to various people. So mm -hmm. he just completely muffed that. Um, secondly, when it came to foreign policy, I mean, the man was a walking, crating disaster. Libertarians believe in the use of force in order to repel force. It is one of the great political challenges for every theory, libertarians inclusions, when you are not attacked but your friend is attacked. You may not be obliged to defend him, but you're certainly not obliged to stay out. What do you do? And what we all have to do is to make these very difficult utilitarian calculations on the question is, do we spend our scarce resources trying to prop up a regime that seems to be dangerous, knowing that if we don't, there may be mass slaughter. Right. Rand Paul essentially took the very strong isolationist line, saying we never get ourselves involved unless there's a direct threat to the United States. And that's simply too narrow a test to using what's going on overseas. And so many of the Republicans who believed in libertarianism at home believed, as did other kinds of libertarians, in a kind of very focused, powerful use of military force. So my favorite illustration of this is, is Jim Buchanan, who's the late great economist. He had a second life. Uh, during the Second World War, when he was a young man, he was an aide to Admiral Chester Nimitz in the Pacific. And, you know, Nimitz was the kind of guy, he wouldn't finesse you, he'd just go over you and through you. And so Jim always took the position, I don't want my government doing much, but the things that I wanted to do, I wanted to do them well. And Rand Paul never really understood exactly that way. And the other thing, of course, is that, you know, he really did not understand how the full system works. So one of the things that I heard through the great font was that he goes and he uh, goes to one of these presidential beauty contest uh, sponsored by the Koch Foundation with a large well here Dan is there. Right. And, and the word that came back uh, through the scuttlebutt was that he bombed at that particular occasion because his positions were sufficiently rigid and dogmatic that when people started to give him concrete questions about the way in which you deal, for example, with net neutrality and so forth, he really was not in a position to give them some kind of an answer. And uh, I, mean, I actually, in some sense, are embarrassed by the whole kind of connection. It's not that I don't respect much of what he says and agree with it. I'm a great champion of the flat tax, for example, mm -hmm. and so certainly his. Uh, but Cass Unseen in a ostensibly favorable review of my book on the classical liberal constitution announced that I was the intellectual granddaddy of somebody like Rand Paul. <laughs> I mean, I, I said to myself, no, that is not what is going on in this particular case. The man simply doesn't understand the way in which these various, the, the positive uses of government, it doesn't therefore try to figure out what they are, why they work, and how you ought to do them. Now, Paul, Paul Ryan hands out copies of Atlas Shrugged to his aides. Does that make him a libertarian? It may, but, you know, I've never read the novels of Bran Rand. Mm -hmm. And I'll explain to you what it is about her which leaves me uneasy. Uh, there are two ways to think about libertarianism apart from the political disputes. One of them is, is a kind of a personal code, and the other is a systematic organization. And what Ayn Rand loves to do is to take these individuals who fight against the system, show heroic qualities of one kind or another, in order to bring down 
evil institutions. Ch- well, right. Yeah, well, there may be some people like that in the world, but most of us are trying to live our lives in a rather routine way. And a libertarian has to respect the fact that some people want to be employers and some people want to be employees and don't want that risk. Some people, like myself, love to speak on television and on the radio, and other people are frightened to death to go public. And so what you do is, as a system matter, you want to make sure that you have enough flexibility that people of different tastes, dispositions, attitudes, and personalities can all find a niche or niches in which they can survive for themselves. And so I'm much more interested in the systematic way in which you organize something rather than the autobiographical stories of some mythical creature who flies very close to the sun but doesn't have his wax wings burned off. I mean, they're very different kinds of, of people. And, you know, I think it's perfectly fine to write about that. And certainly when you look for people, uh, you want people who have intellectual bite, you want change makers and so forth. As an academic, you know, you really have the question, are you going to be high risk or low risk in what you do, right? And I've always been a high risk guy, as I told you earlier on in the show. Somebody wants me to write about something I don't know about, I don't regard it as something to run from. I said, hey, here's an opportunity to learn something because I know I have a guaranteed audience for what it is that I'm going to learn. And I think those things are, are what really matters. And I am not a great novelist in that sense. My kind of novelist that people like, Jane Austen. Right? I mean, because everybody loves her because she writes on a very, you know, on a very small pad of paper, paints on a very small campus, but she has such incredible detail about the people whom she writes about and talks about that everybody who looks at it says, God, there's something about this that I've learned about myself and everybody else. And I don't know if you remember the beginning of Sense and Sensibility, where uh, the uh, rich fellow talks himself out of a large inheritance gift to his uh, wayward niece, and you just see the cycle. I said, well, I'll give it 10, 5, 2, 1, and you end up at 1, and it's just a brilliant portrait of how it is that generosity is always tempered by egotism, and you look at that and you think to yourself, is this who I am? Is this the way I'm going to behave? Can I do a little bit better? Or does she really have it right in some sense of the world? So uh, there are kind of different sorts of peoples. Some people like Rubens. I prefer Vermeer. Okay. Donald Trump. Ooh. If there is a libertarian Rushmore, Richard, I assume you're not putting Donald Trump up on the libertarian Rushmore. But is this... Let's let's go to that great political philosopher, Mick Jagger, who famously said, what, you can't always get what you want, but sometimes you find you get what you need. Is Donald Trump at least giving libertarians what they need? Ah, let me put it this way. I, I always make two distinctions. Um, one is I always talk about Trump a la carte, which means that when you pick the first thing out from the menu, it doesn't give you any information as to whether you're going to want the second thing on the menu. Right. Uh, so he's a guy that whom you can rate that 10 on one issue and one on another issue and be correct on both of them. There are very few people who have that kind of erratic behavior which makes it hard to sum him up over all relevant uh, dimensions. And the second thing is I draw a fairly strong distinction between Trump the man and Trump the administration. And the Trump administration, at least from the people whom I know, are extraordinarily able people who are doing, I think, really powerful and wonderful work. I can't say that about all of them. Some of them are more silent than others. I am proud to say that a very large number of my former students and academic associates have gone into the administration, and I regard them all as the creme de la creme, and I'm just overjoyed to see them in that administration and working. And, and so what happens is when I see particular things come down, which you know generally get rebuke, my attitude is he's done the right thing, 
but almost without error. If he starts to explain why he's done the right thing, he tends to give the wrong reasons. Give me a for instance. Well, the Paris Accords, I think, is a classic illustration of what's going on. I mean, how one should think about climate change is an extremely complicated problem, to put it mildly. Right. Uh, but there has become a kind of religion uh, which goes far beyond the facts and the way in which it characterizes the current situation. Um, and so we hear stories about catastrophes that are just looming around the corner. Uh, so to give you an illustration of something that I read just yesterday when working on a piece on this subject was there were projections or estimates of what would be the rise in sea levels in the United States from, say, 1996 to uh, 2016. Now, the historical norms in this particular area have been that sea level has risen for many years, centuries, in fact, by about a twentieth of an inch a year, or five inches a century, if you do the very difficult math to get there. And if you then look at the period from 1996 to 2016, it rose about an inch, maybe an inch and a tenth, maybe 0.9. You have to look at the graph to figure it out. Mm -hmm. Then you get this Al Gore line, right? right? And he's got it going up 40 inches. So he's merely off by a factory, a factor of 40. Now, if you start using a guy like that as the basis for your future projection, you're going to see what these complaints look like. And I've worked on these for clients' issues. And, you know, every city is going to be inundated by the year 2050. And so everybody in the oil business has to pay for all of this stuff. It's just, if you try to do a probability estimate of these things based upon the existing numbers, uh, you, you may be able to get to a foot. It'd be very unlikely you could get to a meter. You're certainly not going to get to six feet in 42 years. And yet, that seems to be the new normal about the way in which it goes. So when you get out of the Paris Accords, what are you doing? Oh, the first thing is, is you're not committing huge resources by fiat to deal with the problem of uncertain magnitude, knowing full well that the United States today is still, in terms of the utilization of carbon dioxide for production, the most efficient company in the world. So we produce much more than China, but we produce it with half as much of the carbon dioxide emissions. And what happens is the thought that you should now try to be draconian and cutting down in the United States, which is efficient, instead of going to China and to India, which are inefficient, is crazy. So to give you an illustration, Stanford has this conic problem of water shortages, right? Mm -hmm. And there are two kinds of people who've responded to water shortages. Some people with great foresight have managed to triple their efficiency before the crisis comes. Other people have done absolutely nothing. Now when the crisis comes, what you do is you tell everybody, cut down pro rata 10%. Well, the first guy has already cut out all the fat. It's crazy to ask him to bear the burden. It's the second guy who's done nothing who should do all of the work. And yet we only have a pro rata system because it turns out we are now treating unlike cases alike instead of like cases alike. That's a bit what's happening with respect to the Paris Accord. Um, you give the Chinese a 15-year pass, and they announce that they really are into, into controlling global warming. They're reducing the number of coal stations that they're going to use from, say, 400 to 250. But they're not even clear that they're going to use the right kind of coal. So you take the Germans, they're worried about carbon dioxide. They have wrecked their entire energy economy by the kind of foolishness which they cannot sustain. First of all, they won't burn hard coal, which has low CO2, because they're afraid of that, which is trivial, compared to the immense amount of visible, dirty, ugly pollution that comes out when they burn lignite coal, 98% of their coal supply. Then, of course, that's not sufficient. And so these people start burning wood, which is even worse in terms of the way in which you're doing this. Then they try solar panels in Germany in winter. 
who are you kidding? So there's a great website, one of the sort of skeptical website, has a picture of a German solar panel covered with snow in the middle of December saying, this is the technology of the future. So he gets out of this particular arrangement, and what he does is he then gets away from the serious problem of having to make huge compensation to other nations for the harm caused by global warming. So there was a very interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times about some woman who was a Trump nominee. And uh, she didn't know much about global warming, and I'm quite prepared she didn't do it. But the comment they made is, and she said something about the improvement in the amount of greenery attributable to carbon dioxide. This is not a myth. It's a fact. I mean, it's been documented time after time uh, that the amount of new greenery on the Earth's surface is about 14% which is about the size of two continental United States in the last 30 years as a positive effect of global warming. Now, there may be negatives on the other side, uh, but you certainly don't want to do an analysis, as many people have done, of the social cost of carbon by looking at all the negatives and ignoring all the positives and assuming, by the way, uh, no improvements in technology as you start to ramp up. So take something like fracking. We have certainly more than doubled, quadrupled, the amount of production that has happened since 2010. So we're now neck and neck with Russia, Saudi Arabia, uh, for the, as it were, energy production capital of the world with immensely positive political connotation. But if you then start to ask, well, what's the level of energy load? What's the energy of waste that's been involved in this? Those things have each been cut by, you know, 30, 40, 50 percent. Well, if you've got five variables and you prove each of them by 50 percent, uh, the total improvement or the total cost is, you know, just way down, because the, if you combine all of the savings in all the areas, you're doing with 10% of the waste that you did before. And most of the estimates that are put forward are completely non-dynamic about the way in which markets could respond to these things. Uh, to give you about a simple-minded example, if you're looking at methane, that is a greenhouse gas, and it goes into the atmosphere, it turns out to be more dangerous per unit than is carbon dioxide. But remember, methane is also natural gas. Right. There's a strong incentive to capture that stuff and to recycle it one way or another. And so when you're looking at the way in which this has gone, my conclusion, having you know, talked about this and gone about it a lot, is the technological changes in the United States have been so dramatic that the real challenge is to figure out how to get them worldwide. And so what's the problem? Well, I've had clients who have come up with really novel and powerful technologies, for example, uh, to get um, waste metals out of slag and waste, just completely different structures than before. So I said, take up to China. And this is what everybody tells you. Everybody tells you. You share any intellectual property with the Chinese, they'll steal it. And then they'll transfer it to a wholly owned Chinese corporation, and so you're out of luck. Right. And the single most important things that they have to do is, is they have to back off of this kind of kleptomaniac kind of behavior and respect intellectual property rights of everybody else. Otherwise, uh, what's going to happen is we're going to get more difficulties there because they will not be able to get the kind of technology that they need to improve what they've done. And remember, they produce twice as much CO2 right now as the United States does, um, probably more, because we continue to get better and they continue to get worse. It has nothing whatsoever to do with the Paris Accords. So what do the Paris Accords really do? Huge transfer payments 
being made the kleptocrats who can spend it in their own countries in whatever crazy way they spend all the other revenues they have. So getting out of that particular pact, I think, is an enormous advantage. There's a lot of rumors to the effect that the Germans are going to have to get out of this thing as well, at which point the whole thing will collapse. But they've ruined their economy. Only a mad person could think that your primary technology should be wind and solar. So it sounds like you would like a little more intellectual heft out of this president when he doesn't act. It sounds like your complaint is this. He pulls out of Paris and yeah. it's, well, we're not going to be dictated by what other countries want to do. And you'd like to hear more of an intellectual explanation. But, yeah. Rich, but Richard, didn't we have eight years of a University of Chicago law lecturer who gave yeah, us a lot no of intellectual? <laughs> yeah, but he didn't know what he was talking about. I but, mean, look, but, it, but we got professor to death for eight years. Uh, yeah, well, I, look, it's not a question of him sounding like a professor. Right. It's a question of putting forward rationales and common language that actually makes sense. Mm -hmm. So the last thing you want to do is, it's not that it's true or false, is to talk about, you know, a bad bargain for the United States. Everything is in the personal side. Everything's America first. Mm -hmm. What you want to do is to say that structurally this thing doesn't make any sense. And people in the administration do say it. It kind of gets out there. But his immediate reaction is everything is over the bargaining table. Now, with the Paris Accords, it didn't lead to the wrong result. Try NAFTA on for size, right? The man actually thinks that when you're talking about a couple of trillion dollars in trade, whatever the number is, it's over a trillion, right? And you got a $71 billion balance of payments, quote-unquote, deficit, bad deal. Mm -hmm. there, it is hard to explain the stupidity behind a statement like that. And, and what I tried to do is you break it down into three components to get this thing into control. First of all, you say, what about all the stuff that America sells overseas? And, you know, we have huge amounts of foodstuffs that we send out to to Mexico and so forth. All of those are positive some transactions for the United States and for the Mexicans, right? So you don't want to kill those. And then we import stuff. Well, when we import stuff, again, it's positive some. Now, how does that deal with our international position? When he was a real economist and 40 years ago, Paul Krugman did some really great work indicating that the great benefits from international trade was the ability to share and pool technology across lines. And it was much more that, in terms of efficiency, than trading finished goods for foodstuffs with undeveloped nations. This is what drove the economy. Right. All right, so if you have that, you want these transactions for two reasons. One is it produces consumables for Americans, which give them lower price. And two, it gives you components for goods that you could then use to improve your position in the domestic and the export markets. So why would you want to kill that off? Can't think of any reason. So what's the third component? Well, there's a surplus. They got $71 million, and it's a little bit like the tax stuff. This money is not going to sit in a CD. Somebody's going to start to invest it in plants and equipment, which will raise the wages for American workers. Right. So you've got three separate components to the program, all are positive. And now when you sum them up, he comes up with a negative. I mean, this is, you know, got the wrong direction, as well as the wrong arguments on this stuff. And yet at the same time, when the tax thing comes through, uh, the question of whether it's going to be passed through one way or another, he supports the bill. And he's right. So the money comes back home. And then if you recall, there were many people who said, oh, my goodness, they said. All these corporations are going to do is going to make distributions to their shareholders. Thank God. Because if you keep the money in large corporations, it's hard to do through large corporations seed capital ventures. You have to start small. It has nothing to do with the incompetence of large people. It's just that if you've got a billion-dollar project and you're putting it into the middle of a $100 billion corporation, 
anything that it does is not going to make much of an effect on the bottom line. So when you have these high variable projects, you have to put them as isolated ventures. And you're going to only be able to do that if you get capital distributions to individuals who can then invest them into some smaller firms. Uh, so what's going on is now described by the conventional liberal press as sort of the idleness of the rich right. and to be condemned is exactly the opposite. What it turns out to be, quite emphatically, is the ability to redeploy capital more efficiently. And the single biggest challenge about the American exchanges is we are so tough on going public uh, that we delay the process more than we ought, which means that it's harder for the real financiers and innovators who are basically good with small corporations to liquidate their positions and start over again. The term serial investor is not an insult. It's not like serial killer. A serial investor is somebody who knows how to start from the ground up, somebody like Peter Thiel, right? You know, he can always figure out what to do. I don't want him sitting there holding preferred stock in a large corporation. I want him seed venturing 10 or 20 other things that he knows what to do. And our startup rate is down. And this, of course, is the Obama genius, right? Um, they get very hostile right. uh, to going into public markets. Uh, and then, of course, on, on, on the patent stuff, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's a huge cleavage in the field. And many people like myself uh, say that the major effect of the America Invents Act of 2011, another Obama convection, was essentially to destroy the incentives to invent by right. small people. And in fact, the small inventors were the ones who were most against it. Right now, the thing is playing out again in front of the FCC and a lot of other areas on net neutrality. And the marketeers like myself are saying, look, I don't worry about holdouts in this particular business. Right. I worry about government stagnation. And people on the other side are saying there always have been holdouts. And then you ask, where are they? And it turns out you can't identify any serious case of a holdup that has stopped a good transaction. So serial investor, I think you found a good word finally to put after serial. Serial is usually a pretty bad That's what I said. Philanderer, or murderer, you name yeah, it. Yeah, I know. Let's, let's have Professor Epstein hand out some grades to the freshman president. These are libertarian grades. I want you to award the president. Oh. Course number one, taxation. Course number one, taxation. I think he gets a kind of B plus A minus. Okay. Um, the reason why he doesn't get a higher grade is he's uh, is too unwilling to tackle progressive taxes on the ordinary income side. Mm -hmm. And um, if you really did this correctly, that top bracket would go down to what it was under Reagan at 28. Ideally, I would have it as perfectly flat. Um, and I would also switch it to consumption. Uh, switching to a consumption tax is a huge burden if you do it incorrectly. But there are a couple of things that he could have done which never made it onto the plate. And the most important of those um, would have been to exempt gains uh, from the sale of stock, which is then reinvested in other stock within a short period, right. uh, so that you don't have the huge hit. There are a series of like-kind exchange provisions associated with corporate reorganizations and land transactions. They're too narrow and they ought to be broadened. He wasn't prepared to take that on. On the other side, there are an incredible set of tax rackets, which are widely unknown by the populace at large, that should have been closed. Um, Warren Buffett keeps telling us you know, how his secretary pays marginal tax rates much higher than his. What he doesn't tell us is that he has been able to work, like all billionaires, Huge numbers of tax deals that involve three fundamental principles. Uh, first, what you do is you're able to depreciate borrowed property, which means that if you buy a property for $10 in cash and $90 in a loan, you could take depreciation long after your equity position has been written off. So it's an implicit subsidy because you're getting a tax loss when there's no economic loss, and then you have to pay it back at the end. The problem is when the end comes, you're dead, mm -hmm. and we forgive the gain. 
And then to make it worse, we can amplify this early deduction tax forgiveness by partnership allocations under Section 704. And what they do is they allow one person to buy the depreciation deductions today if they're going to sell it back to somebody else tomorrow. So not only can you depreciate your own interest, but you can depreciate that of somebody else who's a partner with you. So the businessman and the charity have a perfectly fine way of getting together. Charity doesn't need the depreciation deductions, but is always happy to have the money. You do this, you get huge stuff. So he didn't do that. Mm -hmm. He was very courageous, on the other hand, about state and local taxes. Um, uh, you know, I... You could have argued that maybe you should have had a little bit faster transition. But, you know, as somebody who pays taxes in only states that are <laughs> wrong, you know, I work in New York. New I York, in, New Jersey, California, yeah, Illinois. California, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a... Um, You're a blue state hill. Yeah, I mean, but what happens is this will actually force these people to rethink because you're getting rid of the subsidy. And the idea that somehow or other you have a constitutional right to a subsidy from your fellow states is right. too bizarre for words. So he does pretty well on the tax. B plus A minus on taxes. Uh, foreign entanglements. Course number two, foreign entanglements. Foreign entanglements, you mean on the, the question of how it is that we deal with Syria, China, Russia, and so forth, right? Yes, yes. Again, I would sort of rate the performance about the same level. I mean, it's vastly superior to the D plus C minus performance that you had under the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. He has flexed the occasional muscle um, in Syria and in Iraq, and I think that those things have helped. It's not as though there's been a dramatic public statement, but he's more willing to use force, less worried about the fact that you may burn down a eucalyptus tree when you bomb the enemy and so forth than the other guy. He has, you know, Jim Mattis is a, you know, advisor par excellence in the Defense Department. And mm -hmm. you remember it was o Mattis who was sacked by Obama right. um, back in 2013 because he disagreed with the policy. I think Trump should be a little bit more full-throated with respect to NATO, but I do think he is basically committed to them and he tried to get them to build up forces. Towards the end, even Obama realized that if you had a complete void by taking American tanks out of Western Europe and out of Latvia and places like that, you would run into trouble. Trump has kept that up. On China, I mean, it's an extremely delicate situation because, you know, you have to deal with somebody who's helped you with respect to North Korea, but whose, you know, aspirations in the South China Sea are simply beyond parallel. I mean, this is a guy who, they create fake islands in the middle of nowhere and claim right. navigation rights. I mean, this is a just a thoroughly bad actor from start to finish. Putin is a complete louse and a scoundrel, as, as I think everybody knows. Trump, I think, has finally learned that lesson. And um, if he keeps the energy going in the right direction, he'll undercut the, the key source of revenues that the Russians have, which will help. I think uh, in the situation with Iran, he was left in a terribly bad position by the Obama Treaty, which should have never been made. Uh, and it was made by rather grotesque constitutional conventions. Mm -hmm. um, unraveling it, of course, is much more difficult than not making it under these circumstances. And I think he's done a pretty credible job. Tillerson, I think, has done a pretty credible job in trying to keep the pressure on without creating a complete disruption with our allies. So overall, you know, I would kind of say not as successful as tax, but it's a harder field, right? Tougher course, right? So a libertarian grade of about a B? No, a little better, B plus. B plus, okay. Uh, course number three, entitlements. Libertarian grade of? Of B minus, I yeah, would guess. That generous, wow. Uh, well, I mean, he, look, with entitlements, 
the first thing is, do you expand them? And if every other president has and you don't, uh, mm -hmm. uh, that's a huge achievement. And if you recall, what Ronald Reagan did was only change the second derivative. That is, he reduced the rate of increase in the size of the entitlements. He was never able to turn them around. George Bush tried with Social Security, did not understand how complicated the system was, and completely failed with that back in 2005 and so mm -hmm. forth. Um, what has happened here, I, I think what's going on is that the good stuff of the uh, uh, Trump administration is, is they're not actually pumping in order to expand their scope, but they failed in trying to reshape it. So, I mean, to take the noticeable failure, it would surely be the ACA. Um, they try to talk about repeal without replace. And again, they make the terrible mistake of not understanding that transitional systems are extremely difficult to organize. And in fact, they did not organize them at all, let alone organize them well. Uh, right. So I've written extensively on these columns about what you have to do in order to straighten out the ACA. You have to get a different list of essential benefits. They're much too rich. You have to change the um, the, 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 the the MLRs, the the, the the administrative loss allowances that come under these things. You only allow people to spend 15,000, 15% rather of your total things on administrative costs. A, you have a definitional problem of what counts as an administrative cost. And B, it violates the equal marginal principle. If you could spend a dollar better on administrative controls than you can on medical resources, a firm will do this. A government renegade won't do that. Uh, the Republicans didn't want to talk about that. They didn't try to figure out how you rationalize the stuff with respect to pre-existing conditions. They did nothing with the crazy privacy rules that were introduced under HIPAA, which probably cost the economy God knows how many billions of dollars each year with you know needless courts of protection that only irritate and, and infuriate everybody who has to live on them. So they're just a huge number of mistakes. Uh, uh, he hasn't been able to control anything powerfully with respect to the Medicaid payments, right? Block grants mm -hmm. to the states and so forth. So he hasn't done anything terrible, uh, but he hasn't. He muffed the one opportunity he had, and this is exactly why uh, he's not a serious president in one sense. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know enough personally to actually take the lead on something as complicated. And you cannot be an effective president on matters like this if what you say is, okay, Congress, you fix it and I'll vote for it, right? You've right. got to take some degree of leadership. And that means you have to put somebody in charge of HHS who knows what's going on. Uh, the first appointment, you know, guy busted out, can't remember his name. I couldn't even tell you the name of the current head of HHS. And it's not, I'm not a Washington groupie. I mean, I, I do intellectual stuff. But it's very clear that there's no intellectual energy coming out of that particular office, right. um, which puts forward a, a kind of campaign. And he's not interested in basically doing that. If you want to be a truly good CEO, this is, I will give you a story which was told to me by Jesse Jackson Jr. On uh, one of my difficult days, I have been an interim dean for one day, and Jesse Jackson Jr. walks into the office for a meet and greet session with me, and he's talking about the <laughs> Commerce Clause, about which he knows less than nothing. And I look at him and say, I've had a very bad three hours. I'm not so sure I'll make it to five o'clock today. But I've heard you say, People say that you're a very good administrator. So tell me, what's your secret? He gave me the best advice I ever got. And what he said was, he said, when you work with a staff, what you have to be comfortable with is having people who work for you who know more about what they do than you know about what they do. Because if you don't have that, he said, and he puts his hands to his head, he said, the size of your organization is the size of your skull, and that's too small to work. 
He said, and then once you get these guys into place, what you have to do is to know enough to keep pushing them so that they'll learn more. Right. And when they learn more, they'll teach you something. And then when they teach you something, you'll start pushing back on them. And then you'll take this information and pushing back on the rest of the staff that you have. So you have to be comfortable with being in a rich position. And I would say if there's one of the unappreciated uh, uh, virtues of a senior position, a dean, a director of a program, a president, and so forth, is being able to work in an environment where you're comfortable and everybody you deal with who's the head of a particular division knows more about what they do than you know about what they do. And you have to be comfortable with that. Um, and even though you can make decisions to override them, you have to listen first. I know this sounds very hard coming from me, uh, but when you actually are an administrator, uh, a sign of power is how much you listen and how little you talk right. um, early on in the processes. Because if you take a strong position internally before other people have expressed their views, nobody's going to want to buck you. Yeah, the, Jesse, so, the Jesse Jackson comment about the size of your head, yeah. uh, it reminds me, Jim Mattis has said a million and one very colorful things. One of my particularly favorite things he said, Richard, was he said, the most important six inches on a battlefield is the space between your ears. Amen, brother. Amen, brother. Let's do a fourth category, and then we're going to wind down the podcast. And that fourth category, and I suspect Professor Epstein's going to give him an incomplete because we don't know what's going to happen on DACA. We don't know what sort of deal could be struck or not. But that's immigration. And Richard, I want you to explain to me what the libertarian position is on immigration, because I keep hearing this chorus from the left, which is Milton Friedman supported open borders. Well, he was wrong. And he did support open borders. No, I, I think, in effect, what he said was more complicated and more subtle than that, and I certainly do not support open borders. But in the shorthand of today, it's becoming, hey, libertarians are for yeah, open I borders. Mean, so. But I, as I said, uh, the number of vices attributed to my libertarian positions are very great. I get them from Rand Paul. I right. get them from the American left. What Milton Friedman said, and what is correct, is in a world in which you have minimum entitlements and rapid growth, you can take in large numbers of people that you cannot do mm -hmm. when you have large entitlements in a complicated system. Right. It's also the case, by the way, that when we did have open borders, people paid a very high price to get across to the United States, so there was a filter, because they had to pick up, they had to go on a boat, they had to scrimp and save. If you had open borders today, you could get 10 million people from China chartering planes, landing in situations, saying, we're now persons who are in this country. Now, why is it so difficult? Well, first of all, you have the entitlement questions, and secondly, as with the immigrants in any period, um, immigration is a change in political power. Right. And so what you do is if you're going to start taking in 100 million Chinese, all of a sudden it's the most powerful interest group block in the United States, and they push forward a constitutional amendment that gets rid of the First Amendment. Um, you cannot have open borders under these circumstances where, in fact, it's going to completely rip up the political constitution in mm -hmm. groups. Everybody kind of knows this. But on the other hand, if you don't let your borders open up some, what you're going to do is you're going to essentially uh, kill your ability to get the kind of intellectual energy and personal and entrepreneurial behavior that are associated with immigrants. Right. So uh, some immigrants are a huge thing. Then, So the battle is which kind? And there's an interesting debate over this. And let's just start with DACA. I've written publicly that what they should have done was simply forget about the legal authorization problems. As usual, Obama went beyond his authority and par for the court. And say, hey, this is not a bad idea. Well, let's just keep this in place mm -hmm. and we'll not make any changes on either side. 
So I won't build a wall and you won't demand instant citizenship. And then we could work it out over time. Both sides have deviated from that principle and the result is exactly what I predicted, impasse and confusion. Sometimes putting more people on the table gives you greater flexibility. In this case, it gives you greater uncertainty and it's an empirical judgment which way it goes. So you want to do that. Then the second battle you have to worry about is how much of this is family related, how much of this is business related. And I think Trump is more right on that. Um, Ironically, I want more people of great ability to come to the United States. If you look at our rules on business immigration, we are pure protectionists in the way in which we write. You have to show that this person will not displace an able-bodied American from this job. There's never the thought that some of these immigrants will actually become managers, entrepreneurs, and business makers of their own who will add an immense amount to them. So this kind of short-minded protectionism is inexcusable, and right. you really want to increase the ability of people, fairly substantial number of people, of all kinds, skins, complexions, and beliefs to come into the United States. On the family stuff, you know, it's really crazy. I have always thought that the so-called constitutional claim, this is highly controversial, uh, that anybody of an illegal alien born in the United States as a citizen of the United States is a crazy rule. It's the 13th or the 14th Amendment. It's the 14th, 14th Amendment, Amendment, and the issue is, does it say that? And there's nothing in it that's explicit about it, and the key cases that have cited for the proposition that the children of immigrants, Chinese immigrants, who are aliens in the United States as citizens, only had to do with people who were legally in the country. There was right. not a word about illegality, which can change everything. But that's a huge thing to fight. But actually, I think it's probably a battle worth thinking about, although I don't think politically is one that's worth doing. Right. But the sort of chain situation, uniting families may be fine, but grandparents, mm, kind of doubtful. Second cousin, not really. So it's going to be the nuclear family if you're going to do this. And I think, in effect, if you switch somewhat from family-related to business-related, it will help the United States, and strangely, it will also help other nations, and mm -hmm. here's why. Um, the only way that people overseas are going to reform their internal economies is if they have a brain drain. And then they realize the only way they're going to be able to peep people is to make things more attractive. And so if you improve the situation in Mexico, for example, uh, there'll be less immigration into the United States, there'll be less distortion, and there'll be more trade. So if you really want to control immigration, the best thing to do is to have open borders for goods, right. even if you have some limit on borders with respect to individuals, so that people in the United States will think, hey, I can go back home to Mexico where Spanish is my first language, I can be a full citizen and so forth, because my wage levels have gone up 25%. And I, I want that. I am holding up a watch right now, Richard, not because time is up, but because if you popped open this very nice Swiss watch, you know what you would see? What? A million and one moving parts. Yes. This is immigration. Yep. We've talked about DACA. We've talked about what's called chain migration. <laughs> We've talked about who comes to this country. We've talked about economic benefits. We haven't even gotten to government services like education, healthcare, yeah. and so forth. We're talking now about, about economies of other nations in which somebody's going to say we need a Marshall Plan for Central America and so forth. Richard, it's like opening up a very nice watch and looking at a million things moving around. What does a libertarian, what is prominent, what is foremost for a libertarian to see fixed or remedied? I'm not sure you can fix it because 30 years ago we had this debate in Washington. We may be having it 30 okay. years from now. But from the libertarian perspective, what is the greatest priority right now? My libertarian perspective. Yours. Right. They, well, I wrote a book called Simple Rules for a Complex World, right? Mm -hmm. And what I meant when I wrote that particular book is there are many areas of life in which what we do is we use multi-factor tests to decide whether X or Y is going to happen. Right. And what we need to do is to put into place sharp boundaries. I can't cross this boundary line. And then within the domain that is mine, I get to decide what I want. 
The theory is that you have to get the uh, distribution of uh, entitlements to match the distribution of information. Mm -hmm. The state is very good at policing boundary lines, um, putting yellow lines down the middle of the street, making sure there are no trespasses. It's very bad in trying to figure out how somebody should design their own apartment. So if you could just have zoning worrying about massing and location and not worried about uses and so forth, it would be a vast improvement. If you could have employment contracts in which the only thing the state worried about is whether or not you signed on the dotted line or used some kind of force and abuse and then start meddling in terms, uh, things would be often better. Uh, so the old libertarian campaign from the 1930s and 40s, the Milton Friedman campaign, the George Stigall campaign, had this following theme, do not make competitive markets into state monopolies. And if you could reverse that, that would be it. So those two things are what I would do first. Welfare reform is a nightmare. It's going to be hard to disentangle that in any sensible way. Immigration, as we've seen, is a real difficulty. You're not going to get huge there. Healthcare, retirement, these are problems. So what you want to do is improve the size of the productive base by having stronger voluntary contracts and clear property rights between individuals. As the base starts to improve, the need for transfer payments will be reduced, and that means that much of the complexities will disappear from the system. As the base gets larger, you can be more confident in the way in which you deal with foreign affairs. You don't have to worry about outsourcing as though we're a national disaster. So I would start on those particular issues, and then as those things become clearer, start to move in these other areas. Very good. Final question for you, Richard Epstein. 45 years ago, there was a lot of intellectuals and intellectual novas unleashed in the United States and around the world. Robert Nozick writes a book. Robert yeah. Nozick, nice kid from Brooklyn. Yep, I knew, I knew Bob well. Like son of immigrants, I think. He was like one step away from yeah. the shtetl. His daughter was my student. He writes a book called Anarchy. Utopia. Right. Um, not long after that, Hayek wins the Nobel Prize in Economics. I think in 75, he wins the Nobel in Economics. Yeah. I think a year later, Milton Friedman wins the same yeah. award. Margaret Thatcher comes along not too long after that mm -hmm. as the leader of the UK opposition. You have tax revolts in California and Massachusetts, and then a guy named Ronald Reagan gets elected. There's sort of this great burst of energy, Richard, in the late, mid to late 1970s, culminating 80 with Reagan. So here we are 35, 40 years later, do you see that energy coming anytime soon? Is there, is there a future parallel you see happening here? Well, I don't see the leader who can do it. There's no Thatcher. There's no Reagan. Uh, mm -hmm. flung, Trump is too flawed, too personal, not detached enough. One of the things about Reagan, Reagan, which is clear when you read the Anderson stuff and the papers that he put out, right. the guy actually was a serious thinker. He was folksy in his style. And my friend Doug Ginsburg, when he worked for the president, said, you go into his library, you see copies of the classics, and they were all annotated in the margins by none other than Ronald Reagan. Right. Um, I wish there were somebody, I think, who had that particular statute. I, I suspect there is somebody out there. I suspect that I cannot name that particular person. I know it's not Ron Paul. Um, I'm not sure who it would be. Uh, but, you know, I would love to see a classical liberal candidate go through who understands, A, the limitations of markets, B, the importance of taxation and regulation in certain areas, and C, the importance of social norms in the way in which you document situations, and also some sense of the real difficulties of transitional justice, which makes it much harder to reverse mistakes than it is never to make them to begin with. So if that man or woman is out there, you're ready to have a conversation with yeah, them. I'm willing to be a free advisor. Richard Epstein, I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. 
You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the Policy Avenue, is available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. And I encourage you to do the same for Richard Epstein's very fine podcast, The Libertarian, which is also available to you. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Richard Epstein and his colleagues your inbox every weekday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Richard Epstein is a brave man. He's also on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Richard A. Epstein. That's at Richard A-E-P-S-T-E-I-N, at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.